Good afternoon, everyone. Welcome to Bible Quest, the Tuesday edition. I'm your host, Jonathan Sadler, uh, and I've got Justin Dobbs with me right now. How are you doing, Justin? Doing well, thank God. Good, good to see you. Uh, Scott Smusser should be joining us here in just a little bit, but we can go ahead and get started for you all and get the, the subject introduced. Uh, today we're going to be talking uh, again back in the Gospel of Mark. We've been going through this periodically uh, with some of the, the recent broadcasts that we've had. And we made it all the way almost through Mark. Uh, we're getting close to the end, and we're on Mark chapter 12 right now. Uh, this is in the last week of Jesus' life. We already saw Jesus enter into Jerusalem. And when he enters into Jerusalem, uh, he starts really uh, upending things, literally and, and figuratively, um, really causing, <laughs> causing a ruckus. Uh, and starts facing some opposition and very specific challenges from the, the Jewish people who are not happy that he's there and really want to get rid of him. This is kind of the final straw for them. At the end of Mark chapter 11, what we read last time, they directly challenge Jesus's authority. They, they basically come to him and say, who gives you the right to do all this stuff? Where, where do you get your authority from? And Jesus answers them with a question that they're unwilling to answer because they're not really concerned about where he got his authority. They just want him to stop. They, they want him to get out of Jerusalem and, and leave uh, the, the city to, to themselves so they can do their thing. And that's where we pick up in Mark chapter 12, where they're going to be, uh, again, kind of challenging Jesus, but not before Jesus has some more teaching than specific accusations to them that's going to frustrate them, make them more upset. So that's uh, the beginning of Mark 12. When do you guys want to read that first a little bit? Yeah, I can do that. Mark 12, beginning of verse 1. And he began to speak to them in parables. Man planted a vineyard and put a fence around it and dug a pit for the wine press and built a tower, leased tenants and went to another country. When the season came, he sent a servant to tenants to get from them some of the fruit of the vineyard. And they took him and beat him and sent him away empty handed. Again, he sent to them another servant and they struck him on the head and treated him shamefully. He sent another, him they killed. And so with many others, some they beat, some they killed. He had still one other, beloved son. Finally, he sent him to them saying, they will respect my son. For those tenants said to one another, this is the heir. Come, let us kill him and the inheritance will be ours. And they took him and killed him and threw him out of the vineyard. What will the owner of the vineyard do? He will come and destroy the tenants and give the vineyard to others. Have you not read the scripture, the stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone? This was the Lord's doing and was marvelous in our eyes. And they were seeking to arrest him, but feared the people, for they perceived that he had told a parable against them. So they left him and went away. I love that verse 12. It's like they perceived that he had told a parable against them. Yeah. <laughs> you think? <laughs> yeah, yeah. It's kind of funny. They, they realize, oh, Jesus, is, <laughs> he's calling us out here with a really simple story, though, um, what he illustrates here. And this story, the, the parable that he tells um, is really fascinating. It's really amazing to think about the, the patience and and long suffering of the vineyard owner who in this illustration is God, is the father. Uh, I don't think Jesus specifically says that, but I think we can tell that really easily based on the, the different characters and how the Pharisees identify themselves. Um, but you've got God who owns this vineyard or this man who owns a vineyard. 
And he, like we still often sometimes do today, you own something, you lease it out or rent it out so other people can work it for you and they get to share in some of the crop and you get some of the, the crop as well. And so it gets to the time of the season where you want what belongs to you. And so you're coming to get your fruit, coming to get your crop. He goes and sends a servant to do that. And they just get more and more aggressive as he keeps trying to get what belongs to him. Um, first, they they beat the servant and send him away. Then they treat him shamefully and and straight, uh, uh, strike him and they send him away. And then they eventually kill them and they keep killing and mistreating and doing all of these terrible things to the servants that are coming to get the resources. And finally, the owner of the vineyard says, I've got it. I'll send my son. If they won't respect any servants, they'll surely respect my heir. And they don't, um, which is not super surprising, I think. And they end up deciding, let's kill the heir so we can take the vineyard for ourselves. Um, and Jesus asked the simple question at the end of the story, uh, what do you think that the owner of the vineyard is going to do? Um, you, know, you, you killed his heir, you killed his servants, you took his vineyard forcefully. What do you think he's going to do? He's going to come with an army and, and destroy you and take back what's what's actually his you haven't thwarted his plans in the least um and jesus says that's exactly what's happening here in jerusalem this this is god's nation this is god's world and he has set it up in a certain way and you should have been tending it and keeping it and producing the fruit that he wanted you to produce to give back to him and you haven't been doing that you've been rejecting and you're eventually going to kill his son and God is going to take back by force what's his. He's going to establish a, a house and a nation from what you've rejected and what you've thrown off. That's going to be fully fulfilled in Jesus. And Peter will really play on that, that uh, prophecy uh, that, that Jesus quotes about himself in some of the letters that Peter writes later on. Um, so really straightforward attack uh, that Jesus has on the Pharisees and what they've been doing. Do you guys have any comments or thoughts through verse 12? I mean, it is so straightforward. It's almost pointless to make any comment on it. Um, just with one thought here is it'd be helpful if we spend some time thinking about how we handle uh, criticism. Uh, these prophets are coming and just saying, hey, you owe God something. Uh, God wants something out of you. And if someone were to come and, and tell us, hey, you're not doing what you're supposed to be doing. You're not behaving the way God wants you to behave. You need to bear some fruit. I might not take too kindly to that. It would hurt, it would sting. Uh, I, I might feel defensive or maybe want to flip it around on the, the guy or the girl who came and told me. Uh, that, that's the kind of attitude that Israel had had for a long time. So they'd always abused, beaten, killed the prophets. Uh, and so if, if we're not careful, we'll have the same kind of attitude. It doesn't feel good to be criticized, but but that's the message we need. The gospel begins with repent. And so we, we constantly need to be in this position of I'm eager to turn to God and I'm eager to change like a more pleasing. Yeah. Another thing going off of that is um, that you notice in the story, God can accomplish his will with or without you. <laughs> um, so you can either be with him and his will is accomplished in your life and things are good, or you can be against him and his will is still accomplished without you and things are bad but god wants to accomplish his will with us it's, it really is our decision do you want to be on the winning team or not um and uh you know it doesn't matter how much you reject or push away god's cornerstone god's will he's able to build things out of things that we reject and and further his purposes
And so kind of summarizing, of course, God is the owner of the vineyard. This, the people that are acting uh, badly toward the servant city sins is, of course, the nation of Israel. The servants are the prophets. Jesus is the son. And he's going to turn it over to somebody else that's going to be going to the Gentiles. Uh, but it's worth pointing out here, uh, maybe a reminder about parables. Sometimes there's several layers and different things in a parable, but oftentimes there's some main points in a parable and we get in trouble if we start pressing the side points. So I've compared it to like grapefruit juice. I really like grapefruit. And when I finish the grapefruit, I squeeze it out because I really, really like the grapefruit juice. But sometimes I squeeze too hard. And if you keep squeezing and keep squeezing, you don't just get grapefruit juice. You start getting that bitter stuff out of the rind. And sometimes people do that with parables. Uh, and for example, here, the vineyard owner sends his son thinking what? Surely so, they'll... Yeah, yeah. yeah they'll, they won't do the same to him. God sent his son knowing what? He knew exactly what they were going to do to his son. So that's not where the parallel is. It's put into a narrative that fits to make a point, and you take it for the point it is. If you try to press the parable too far, then it's not going to fit. Yeah, right. Good points. That's true about parables, too. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Good. Then I have one other thought here. I'm hesitant to make it because I might be squeezing the rind a bit. Um, but, but here in verse 10 and 11, he, he quotes from Psalm 118. Uh, and correct me if I'm wrong on this, the idea is that they've rejected Jesus, that the people of Israel have rejected Jesus, and yet it was Jesus that God chose to be the capstone. And the ESV says cornerstone, capstone. Uh, the idea is it's the most prominent piece, is the, is the stone that the builder really wants to uh, put on display. Um, don't be surprised if we follow Jesus when we're rejected by other people. God yeah. chose Jesus um, and that he was rejected. And so if we're going to follow Jesus, don't be surprised. You know, the prophets were rejected. They were, Jesus was rejected. He was killed. Uh, and so don't be surprised. And, and, and also hold on to the hope that uh, God, God was going to finish what he started doing. It's just because people reject us. What's really important is whether God accepts us. So we, we want to hold on to him and do some things like that. Mm -hmm. Yeah, good point. Good point. So in verse 12, it says that they were seeking to arrest him, but they were afraid of the people. Um, and the reason why they're afraid of the people is because, you remember just a couple of chapters ago, the people really like Jesus. Um, they're ready for Jesus. They've welcomed him in. He's a prophet. He's the, the Hosanna, uh, the, the, the answer to their plea. He's the son of David. He's going to restore Israel, all that sort of stuff. They're, they're on board with Jesus. The Pharisees and the religious leaders are not, and they've got to figure out a way to get rid of him. So the, really the rest of chapter 12 is them sending different groups of people and different groups of com people coming to trip Jesus up or somehow get him in a position where either the crowds turn on him or the Romans turn on him. That's really, it seems like they're two big strategies to set Jesus up and get rid of him. So the first one of those comes in verse 13. <clears throat> it says, they sent to him some of the Pharisees and some of the Herodians to trap him in his talk. And they came and they said, teacher, we know that you are true and you do not care about anyone's opinion for you are not swayed by appearances, but truly teach the way of God. 
Is it lawful to pay taxes to Caesar or not? Should we pay them or should we not? But knowing their hypocrisy, he said to them, Why put me to the test? Bring me a denarius and let me look at it. And they brought one, and he said to them, Whose likeness and inscription is this? And they said to him, Caesar's. And Jesus said to them, Render to Caesar's the things that are Caesar's, and to God the things that are God's. And they marveled at him. So, um, the first challenge that Jesus gets is uh, about paying taxes. Um, but it's interesting how it starts out. They don't immediately come and challenge him. What do they do first? And why do you think they do that? Your mic's muted, Scott. Uh, there's a little bit more information in the Matthew account. It says they sent the disciples of the Pharisees because uh, they don't want it to be recognized. And they're trying to flatter him, get him to say, yeah, don't pay taxes. And then who do they have with them? Herodians. They're loyal to Herod, who is loyal to Caesar. And so the the, the aim here is to send some guys, flatter Jesus, and while he's in front of the crowd, you're not afraid of anybody. You'll really tell the truth. Should we be giving taxes to that Roman Caesar? And they want Jesus to say, you know, politician likes to get the crowd behind him. No, don't pay. Well, the Herodians would hear it. <laughs> the Romans are going to take care of it. And the Pharisees' problem is removed. That's not how it's going to work. No. Yeah, so they're trying to get Jesus to side against the Romans so that the Romans will be able to take him out. They won't have to deal with him anymore. And Jesus deals with it really well. I think in, in each of these interactions, not the, the way that I probably would have dealt with it or at least would have thought to deal with it. He asks for something really simple and like just very ordinary. He says, bring me a denarius, which is, I think would be effectively the same thing as like saying, let me see a dollar bill. Yeah. Um, why, don't, why don't you bring me a dollar bill? Let me see it. Um, and you know, it's not something strange. Uh, everyone that's lived for any amount of time in the United States has seen a dollar bill. They know what it's like. They know who's on it. They know some details about it and things like that. And so he gets the, the piece of, of, uh, of co or the coin and he says, whose picture and whose name is on this? <laughs> and it's a really easy question. It's Caesar's. Now with anything else, if your picture and your name's on it, who does it belong to? It belongs to you. <laughs> yeah, it's got it's got my name. It's got my picture. It's mine. And so Jesus says, if it's got Caesar's picture and his name on it, give it back to him. It's his. Give the things that belong to Caesar, Caesar's. And give to God the things that belong to God. Seems pretty easy. And that's just a one-sentence, easy explanation of what a Christian's relationship with government should be. Give the government what belongs to the government and give God what belongs to God. Yeah. Easy, <laughs> done. Um, we we tend to mess up and and confuse a lot of things kind of in the middle with that. But Jesus' answer is really simple. So he totally blows their mind with just a really simple, easy answer. They're not able to fight against that, and they just I, I imagine kind of have to leave. They they failed their purpose. Go ahead, Scott. I'm going to be using this very text next week in a lecture where I'm going to be talking about the importance of using questions. Um. And so I went through the Gospels and I counted up how many times Jesus asked questions. 175. And that's a conservative estimate. That's not counting the duplications in the synoptics. There are some people that have counted them in, say, like 300-something. Uh, but I counted like 175 different questions. Uh, 
And sometimes his questions are like this one, in which he gets the person to recognize and see something for themselves. And, and the point I'm going to be making next week, and I'll make it here as well, is that way too often when I've been teaching a class, I've got about an hour or 45 minutes to, with this person, and I've got a lot I need to cover, and I've got a lot of verses to go over. And if I slow down and wait for them to see it for themselves, it's going to slow me down. So I tell them what the passage is. I tell them what it means. I tell them what to think. And I think that's a mistake. There, there's a time to tell them. Jesus also told statements. But by, would this have been anywhere near as effective if Jesus had given a five-minute lecture on why you ought to pay taxes? Yeah, no. Mm -mm. Instead, he said, show me the coin. Mm -hmm. Whose picture is that? Yeah. And then whose mouths say Caesar's? Yeah. The Pharisees that came to him. The Pharisees are the ones that have to say Caesar's. So the point's made. Mm -hmm. So much more effective when people admit the point themselves, see the point themselves. Mm -hmm. so much more effective. Yeah, and that's also a big reason why Jesus will use parables uh, as well. And that's one of the values of parables, too. It gives you a story outside of your preconceived idea or your view of yourself or whatever, where you can see a truth and then realize, wait a second, <laughs> that's talking about me. Um, you see that really clearly with like how Nathan deals with David in 1 Samuel or in 2 Samuel. Yep. Uh, in 2 Samuel 12, David is living in a terrible sin. And Nathan comes to him and tells him a story about a poor guy that gets his only sheep stolen and and killed. <laughs> and David's furious. He's like, how can somebody be so heartless and terrible to take yeah. that guy's only lamb when he has all of these lambs? And then Nathan says, David's committed to the answer. Yeah. Or he sees where it's going. David's committed. That's horrible. That guy deserves to die. Yeah. And then Nathan says, you did that. <laughs> like, whoa. Now... Now you can't back out. Now, now you're committed to the truth. And so much more valuable to do that. Nathan could have started with, you're a wicked sinner and adulterous murderer. And maybe David would have seen the point, but it wouldn't have been anywhere near as effective as David realizing it himself before he's confronted with that. So, think, Justin, think, you had a, or, think, sorry, go ahead, Scott. Think of a few other questions. Um, even when they don't answer, what were you guys talking about on the road? Yeah. You know, uh, or, you know, the father told two sons to go work. One said, yes, sir, but didn't. One said, no, but then went. Which one did the will of the father? Yep. The Pharisees themselves and the leaders of Jews, they commit to the answer. Uh, the, the, the lawyer about uh, who's my neighbor, which one proved to be neighbor to the man that fell among thieves? The one that showed mercy yep. on him. And, and so when we're studying with people, it will slow down. Let them look at the text, ask them a question, let them look at the text and wait till they see it. And when they see it and they say, oh, it says repent and be baptized for the forgiveness of your sins. You know, when they see it for themselves, it's much more effective. Mm -hmm. yeah. Justin, do you have a point? Yeah, just nothing really different what Scott's saying, but just 
to emphasize slowing down. Uh, I've, I've noticed that when I do slow down, I may have a lot of material prepared to share with someone. When I take the pace that they have, we only go over like a fourth or a third of it. But it's so much more powerful because they remember it. Uh, and so, yeah, I, I agree with that. And it's making me think about a study I've got later this evening. Um, and I've got so much <laughs> material. Just, and it's not even all the material I want to share with this person tonight. Um, but it's probably more than, than what's useful. We, we really are limited in what we can comprehend in one sitting. Um, and if we'll think back about how did I first learn this, uh, take that pace and, and just really slow it down. Jesus is so patient to go slow with people and ask those questions. Mm -hmm. Yep. Yeah, good. Um, one other thing that I'll say about this, and I think we've, we've hit, you know, this primary purpose of this point. And so at the risk of, of squeezing the rind too much, I think there's maybe another kind of secondary lesson to get from this. What Jesus says about, you know, who's, whose name, whose inscription is on this. His point is, if you've got your name on it, if you've got your picture on it, it's yours. Um, and so give it back to who it belongs to. Um, maybe a secondary application we can make for ourselves is as Christians, as as believers, whose name and picture do we have on ourselves? Jesus. So who do we belong to? Yeah. Jesus. Uh, you know, you that's, not your own. Yeah. yeah. And I don't think that, that's not the point Jesus is trying to make here, but uh, another kind of, you know, there's a truth hidden in that reality. If, if you're bearing someone's name, you don't belong to yourself. Uh, you, you need to, to give back to them what, what belongs to them. Justin? But I might even suggest, I think that is the point Jesus is making. The, the taxes is a side issue. Um, but if, if we're made in God's image, that is of such greater priority than do we pay taxes to. I, I can pay taxes. That's no big deal. Am I giving my life to the God who made me in his image? That's a much, much better issue. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah, good point. Yep. So that's Jesus's first challenge that he faces and deals with that pretty pretty seamlessly um, and, and gets rid of that issue. Uh, another group comes and challenges Jesus after that. So when you guys read that next challenge section, it starts in verse 18. And Sadducees came to him who say there is no resurrection. And they asked him a question saying, teacher, Moses wrote for us that if a man's brother dies and leaves a wife, but leaves no child, the man must uh, take the widow and raise up offspring for his brother. There were seven brothers. The first took a wife, and when he died, left no offspring. The second took her, died, leaving no offspring. The third likewise, and the seven left no offspring. Last of all, the woman also died. In the resurrection, when they rise again, whose wife will she be? For the seven had her as wife. Yeah, you read the Jesus' response to you. Jesus said to them, Is this not the reason you are wrong? Because you neither know neither the scriptures nor the power of God. For when they rise from the dead, they neither marry nor are given in marriage, but are like angels in heaven. And as for the dead being raised, have you not read in the book of Moses, in the passage about the bush, how God spoke to him, saying, I am the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, the God of Jacob? He's not the God of the dead of the living you're quite wrong i really like jesus in this chapter <laughs> some of it's funny whenever i read it like his first thing that he says is isn't this why you're wrong 
<laughs> like nothing you said is right. <laughs> Everything you said is wrong. Uh, kind of thing. Um, but yeah, so the Sadducees come to him. Mark gives the note about the Sadducees here um, that the Sadducees were the section or the sect of Jews that didn't believe in the resurrection. Um, I believe it's in, is it an Acts that goes on to, to say some more that not, not only the resurrection, but they also didn't believe in, in angels and spirits. Is that or an Acts? Okay. We have a spirit. Yeah, they yeah. didn't believe in an afterlife. Yeah, yeah. So like anything kind of ethereal, they didn't believe in, which has always been confusing to me. I'm like, why are you religious if you don't believe in, in that? But I don't know. Uh, they, I guess they had their reasons. Uh, so they come to Jesus with their impossible scenario, their impossible question, just like the Pharisees had their impossible scenario, Sadducees have theirs. And they describe one of the laws, one of the, the leveret marriage laws, which was in uh, the book of uh, Deuteronomy or yeah, Deuteronomy. Um, and uh, it described that if a man didn't have an heir, but he had a brother and he died without producing an heir, that his brother had the responsibility of perpetuating the name of the family, marrying his, his spouse and giving an heir. And so they give this scenario of, uh, you know, you've got that happen seven times. You got seven brothers. Um, I was reading this earlier with somebody and they pointed out how ridiculous of a scenario that that is, because you would think by like, brother three like everyone that marries this woman dies with no kids i don't think I'm, i don't think I'm, she must be poisoning them or something i don't know what's going on uh, but the point's not it's not supposed to make sense it's supposed to be a hard question for jesus to answer and they say so if she was married seven times when we're all resurrected from the dead whose wife is she going to be and what's jesus's answer I really like the way Jesus answers this, uh, and it's, it's similar to the way he approached the last question. He doesn't play by the rules that he's presented with. Um, it's such a great example. Sometimes people will ask questions as either this or this, and Jesus says, I'm not playing that game. I'm, I'm not playing it by the way you set up the board. I'm playing it my way. Uh, and it's, it's just the right way to go about this. So they say, you know, which are the brothers? And it's none of them. <laughs> it was a trick question and they don't even know it so he just he goes back to uh two things it seems like is first of all they don't understand the nature uh of, of marriage um and uh what what the resurrection is going to be like and then two they don't know the power and the character of god so uh, they don't know scripture and they don't know god that's the reason mm -hmm. that they're wrong Mm -hmm. For as far as uh, marriage goes, marriage is we, we tend to think of marriage as being a permanent relationship. And we're right in the sense uh, of this life. It is the most permanent of temporary relationships. Um, it, it, we're not married to heaven. Um, I know there's some some false doctrines out there that talk about marriage and the heavenly realm and, and forever, but that's just it's not what the Bible teaches. Uh, our ultimate relationship is with the Lord. So we're looking forward to that marriage feast with Jesus. Um, so husband, wife, not even a, a thing. Uh, and as far as the resurrection, which is the question they didn't ask, he addresses the question that's behind the question. Um, I don't know what to make of this, you guys. Verse 26, um, he says, I am the God of Abraham, God of Isaac, God of Jacob. Obviously, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob were all dead when you know, God sang this to Abraham. So maybe the point is that, look, God's using a present tense verb, not I was the God of Abraham. It's I am the God of Abraham. 
Um, but maybe maybe there's another point here too, is that God is saying, I'm the God of the living. Uh, I'm, I'm not the God of the dead. There's something about God's character. I think that's wrapped up in this. Scott? Yeah, it says, haven't you read in the place about the burning bush? So this is in the time of Moses. All of these guys are dead for 400 years, but God's still their God. He's the God of the living. And I wouldn't press the uh, tense of the verb too much because I believe it's here in Mark where there is no verb in the Greek. I, the God, et cetera, et cetera. If one of you wants to check that, um, in Matthew and Mark, I think maybe one of them has a verb there and maybe one of them doesn't, if yeah. I remember correctly. Uh, yeah, Mark, is, Mark is the one that doesn't have the verb. Yeah, yeah. So it, it, we shouldn't load it all on the present tense of the verb, but the it's the present statement at the time of Moses he's the God of the living, uh, like in Hebrews, uh, to God and to the spirits of just men made perfect. God's people are not just the people that are alive today. God's people includes, uh, Peter, Paul, you know, saints from the last century, et cetera, et cetera. And so, and in the, the sad sea thinking, no, that's it. It YOLO, you know, and, uh, and uh, that type of thing. Mm -hmm. I also like the way he answers the question and then answers the point. They don't really want to know who she's going to be married to because they don't believe in a resurrection. This is totally irrelevant to them. They don't know any such man. This is their stumper question. And um, Jesus replies, like you said, well, none of them because you don't have marriage in heaven. So, you know, the question doesn't apply. But he doesn't leave it there because that's not why they asked it. They asked it because they believed that there's no life after death. And so Jesus then gets to the heart of why uh, they asked it. And there's something to be said here, too, about the way people will ask this type of question. Um, people will try to find an exception and then make something true look ridiculous. Uh, for example, take what the Bible says about uh, how to become a Christian, repent and be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins. Somebody doesn't want to believe that, and so they'll come up with a hypothetical scenario. What, what will they come up with? What if, what if a in, yeah, in the car on the way to get baptized and you get in a car wreck and die? Yeah, yeah, lightning hits you, tree falls on you. Uh, what if you're that? And the, it, it's not because they know a bunch of people in that situation. It's because they think their stumper question makes the biblical truth untrue. Uh, and you'll see this also like in the abortion debate. Um, you'll see people talk about, well, what about the, the life of the mother, the life of the mother? Well, in a country where we have the ability to do a, get somebody to a hospital and do a C-section, if there's a difficulty, you know, how often is a mother's life going to be endangered, you know, by a child? If there seems to be a, a difficulty, you can do a C-section, hope for the best. But that's not the main reason why people bring that up. Because the people that constantly bring that up, if all across the United States, suddenly all abortions were illegal, except 
in those exceptional cases, would they be happy? No. That's not really why they're bringing those up. They bring those up in an, as an attempt to bring in all the other things. Mm-hmm. So really in, in one fell swoop, Jesus completely obliterates the Sadducees theology. Um, you know, ev- everything that they don't believe in, Jesus addresses here. Um, you know, there are angels, there is no marriage. Abraham and Isaac and Jacob, they have spirits and God is still the God of those spirits. <laughs> Um, you know, he just totally destroys everything that they that they previously thought. I hadn't thought about that, but yeah, he says they are as angels in heaven. I hadn't noticed that, but yeah, he says, bam, 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 whack-a-mole. Yep. So that's the second challenge Jesus faces in this chapter. It deals with that uh, pretty easily. You guys have any other comments or thoughts through verse 27? In, in none of this is Jesus uh, violent or uh, irritable with his words. He's, he is kind, he's relatable. Uh, at the same time, he's not afraid to tell people what they're wrong. I think there's some, for some of us, we want to be as agreeable as possible and find a way to say, well, you know, that, that's a good point. Uh, on the other hand, and we'll just soft pedal it without confronting anybody. Um, and then some of us really, really enjoy telling people how dumb they are and why they should believe like we believe. And Jesus doesn't do that either. He's just, he's kind, uh, he's respectful, but he's also very plain in his speech. And I think there's a lot for us to. to... Mm-hmm. Good point. Well, this last interaction that Jesus has in this chapter is Mark. Mark words it kind of a little bit differently. It's not so much; it doesn't seem to be presented as like they're trying to stump Jesus, um, but Jesus still has this confrontation, still teaches this lesson. Whenever he's asked a specific question here, some of the other gospels will bring up different points in this interaction, and there will be a whole parable in in Luke that Mark doesn't include here. But the last guy that comes up to Jesus in verse twenty-eight is one of the scribes. And it says, he came, and after he heard them disputing with one another, and seeing that he answered them all well, he asked him, which commandment is the most important of all? And so Jesus answered, the most important is, hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. And you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, and with all your soul, and with all your mind, and with all your strength. And the second is this, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. There is no other commandment greater than these. And the scribe said to him, you are right, teacher. You have truly said that he is one and that there is no other beside him. And to love him with all heart and with all the understanding and with all the strength and to love one's neighbor as oneself is much more than all whole burnt offerings and sacrifices. And when Jesus saw that he answered wisely, he said to him, you are not far from the kingdom of God. And after that, no one dared to ask him any more questions. So this last guy comes to Jesus and says, which of the commandments is the most important commandment? Which could be kind of a little bit of a trick question. That's kind of a hard question. You know, if you had to pick one, you might have your opinion. Like I remember um, my, my dad would say often growing up that the thing that he hated the most was a liar. Um, lying was the thing he hated the most. And that's what he really didn't want his kids to do. In his mind, that's like the worst of the worst. You might have that opinion. You might have a different opinion. You could pick almost anything and think this is the thing that everyone really needs to not do. So this is a hard question that Jesus has asked. And a lot of us that are familiar with the Bible know the answer. But if we didn't know the answer, which one would you have picked? There's a lot of commandments. There's a lot to, to think on. So Jesus really illustrates his wisdom here 
and showing the one that really is the, the most important. And he goes right to Deuteronomy 6. He says, this is the most important thing, to know that God is one and that you need to love him with your whole self. You need to love him with all of your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind, with all your strength. And he needs to be the priority and the first one in your life. And then Jesus gives a little bit of extra credit too. And he says, and by the way, the second most important is really similar. It's like it. You need to love your neighbor as yourself, which is where Luke will spend a lot of time talking about that and telling the parable of the, of the Good Samaritan um, and other things. But that's Jesus' answer. Um, and in some of the other gospels, he'll say the reason why is because on these two commandments hang all of the law and the prophets. And you think about it, you can illustrate that with just looking at the Ten Commandments. Which of the Ten Commandments would you be able to break without keeping these two commandments? Like all the Ten Commandments depend totally on keeping these two commandments. If you love God above everything else, you won't have any other gods before him. You won't take his name in vain. It, you, you won't commit idolatry. You won't do all those sorts of things. If you love your neighbor as yourself, you won't covet their wife and take them. You won't steal from them. You won't murder them. You'll honor your father and your mother. If you keep these two commandments, you will keep the rest of the commandments. I think that's one of Jesus's points here. These are kind of the umbrella commandments that everything else falls under. And if you've got these two right, you'll have everything else fall in place. So that's his answer. Do you guys have thoughts or comments about that? You muted yourself again, Mike, or uh, Scott. It's interesting that he has a different attitude than the other fellows. Uh, one of the Gospels said he asked Jesus a question trying him. But it also says here that he knew that Jesus answered him well. And it's, it's not a trick question. It's a serious question. And then after Jesus says it, he says he agrees with it. He says, that's true. And then Jesus says to him, you're not far from the kingdom of God. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So it seems like this guy has a little bit of a heart uh, difference, a little bit of a difference in motivation, which is cool. Justin? And maybe, maybe the way he's uh, not far from the kingdom, if you look at Luke 10, where similar interaction, maybe the same interaction happens. Um, Jesus says, do this. It's, it's the doing. Sometimes we know the right answers. Uh, but that's not good enough. It, it, it's not far from the kingdom if we know the right answer, but it's in the kingdom if we do it. And, and thinking about kind of the umbrella like you described here from uh, the greatest command, uh, I, I think it might be possible to superficially keep the Ten Commandments uh, without keeping the greatest command. Uh, just make me think about, you know, what does it mean to be a good Christian? Well, I don't lie. I don't cheat. I don't steal, I don't commit adultery, don't murder anybody. But moment to moment, am I am I actively loving the Lord? You know, am I doing all things to be pleasing to Christ? Uh, is is my life a an expression of my devotion and my affection for the God who made me? And that's really what God's after. He's not after a bunch of kids who are really well behaved. He's after a family uh, who are devoted to him and loyal to him. And that, you know, you think about your dad, you know, what, what he really couldn't stand was a liar. seems like what God really can't stand uh, is, is someone who pretends to be loyal to him and they're really just loyal to themselves. Scott? Mm -hmm. Right, Scott. Sorry. What you said is illustrated well by Luke chapter 10 in the parable of the Good Samaritan. 
um, you got different types of people. You got robbers that will clearly break the Ten Commandments. They don't mind, you know, thou shalt not steal. Yeah, we're going to steal. Thou shalt not kill. We don't care if he dies. You got the priest and the Levite. They wouldn't have stolen. They wouldn't have beaten the man. But they also walked right by. They didn't love their neighbors themselves. It was the Samaritan that had compassion and wanted to do for the man what he would want done for him. Yeah, good point. So um, the the next story kind of fits the same category of what's been going on in Mark chapter 12 of asking questions, but instead Jesus turns the tables. Instead of being asked a question himself, Jesus has a question now um, to the crowds that are there. And that's the last thing that's said in verse 34. Says nobody wanted to ask him any more questions. He was he was answering everything. So it's his turn now. Go ahead, Justin. Uh, before we jump in there, maybe we'll hold that one till next time. I don't know if you have that plan or not. But um, one one thing that I'd like to point out to people as we study through Mark or Matthew and Luke too is that Jesus is getting ready to be sacrificed. Uh, he is he is the lamb to be slaughtered. And it's going to happen at Passover. Uh, one of the things that God had told the Israelites to do in preparing for the Passover was to take the lamb and set the lamb aside uh, a few days before the sacrifice, actually. And it seems like maybe one of the reasons they were to do that was it would give them an opportunity to make sure that, that lamb was unblemished. Uh, if, if Jesus is being presented in that way in the story of Mark, then what's happening now are the, the leaders, the rulers of the Jews are getting an opportunity to examine Jesus and discover if he has any blemishes. And he's come out of this spotless. Uh, he is perfect in every sense. So when it comes time to, for his sacrifice, he really is going to be the unblemished Passover lamb that, that can take away the sins of the world. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's a good point. I hadn't thought about that, but that's a good point. I like that. Yeah. So yeah. So we can we can wrap up right there. Um, you're probably right, Justin. That'll be a good place to to stop when we finish up Mark 12, uh, the next time that we're in Mark. Um, so uh, do you guys have anything else you want to say through uh, verse 34? All right. Well, thank you to our audience for tuning in with us today. Uh, again, like always, if you have any questions about what we have discussed on the broadcast today, you can visit our website at BibleQuest.tv and let us know about that or anything else you'd like us to discuss in our future broadcasts, you can ask us those questions as well on the same website, and we'll look forward to hearing back from you in the future. Uh, So that's all we have for this week. We'll plan on seeing everyone not next week. Um, I was about to say next week. We won't be on next week, but we will be on the following week. So a week from now, no broadcast. Two weeks from now, we'll be back to our regular weekly schedule. So we'll plan on seeing everyone in two weeks, Lord willing. Mm-hmm.